night. I actually kind of think maybe this is a bit of the Lord's mercy for you because normally when a preacher's been away for a while, you kind of come out with guns a-blazing. It's hard to kind of contain everything into the normal length of time. I had been known post-vacation to preach for quite a long time. It's almost like making up for lost time, but I won't have enough voice to do that this morning, so it'll force me to kind of get to the point. Um, But I do just have to tell you one story because I was asked already multiple times before first service to explain what happened with the shark, which I'm not actually sure how that information actually made it back to Vernon in the first place. Um, And some of you may not have heard a thing about it, But uh, for those of you who are curious, um, I swam with sharks. Well, a shark. Um, When I was, actually there probably were multiple sharks. I just didn't see them all, but I did see one shark. So the first day off the cruise ship, we were in Bahamas, and um, there were signs up saying, you know, if you're going to go up more than 50 feet, swim with a partner. So Pastor Dave and I, we were partners. We went out snorkeling. We did go out past the 50 feet mark because... There's that perfect, you know, that turquoisey blue water you see in all the, the Caribbean pictures. And then just past that, there's like this dark blue sort of foreboding line in the water. And we thought, I wonder what it looks like at that spot. So anyway, so we swam out to see what we would see out there. <clears throat> and I think the idea of swimming with a partner, the implication was you're supposed to be sort of together you know, when you're out in the ocean, you start kind of heading in different directions. By the time we got in our different directions, I don't know, I was maybe from me to Hank back there, away from Dave. When I caught out of the corner of my eye a movement, it was maybe like only six or seven feet away. And I turned and looked, and there was a shark. Now, I think it was about four and a half or five feet long. So this apparently is a young shark. And... I will admit to a few emotions going through my mind. Uh, One was actually fascination, so it wasn't all panic. Uh, Followed very quickly by, I wonder what the shark is doing. Like, is it circling me? I couldn't quite tell. Turns out it just kind of went on its merry way. I did go and try to get Dave, partly because I wanted him to see the shark also, and partly because I thought there'd be safety in numbers and I might be able to outswim him. But... That is the shark story. When we got home, my sister actually emailed me and asked, you know, what kind of shark? Because you can go on Google and find all the pictures, right, and identify the shark. Um, so I did that. There's five types of sharks in the Bahamas. Um, and I, the one was clearly the type of shark I'd seen, which was a tiger shark. Now, I don't know much about sharks. So then the next question, natural question is, is a tiger shark, is a tiger shark dangerous? Turns out incredibly dangerous. So... I have swum with a tiger shark and lived to tell the tale. There you go. That was my story. And I did say to the first service, make sure you ask my sister about what it's like to have monkeys fight on your head. Because I couldn't answer that, but I know she could. You didn't come for that. You came for Daniel. So let's get to work in God's word. In fact, before we dive into Daniel, I just want to take you to one verse in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, which actually is going to help. It'll almost be the outline. It's the way I want to kind of walk through this passage a little bit. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says this, whatever was written in former days, so he's referring back to the Old Testament, and Daniel is clearly a part of that whatever, and so Daniel is a part of what Paul is referring to here. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. In other words, everything in the Old Testament 
is there in order for us to learn something. So it's not just, you know, for us to try to figure out how we feel about it or, or what we think about it. It's there for our instruction. There would be truth that is there for us to learn. And then Paul goes on from that and says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, so just, we're not done the sentence yet, but you kind of see in the natural progression, he says, there's instruction that's going to happen, and that instruction is going to produce endurance and encouragement. In other words, if Paul could diagnose what is the greatest need for us as followers of Jesus, it is that we would have the ability to be encouraged, that we would endure, because Paul knows what we all know if you've been following the Lord for a while, there are things that come along that are hard. There are things that come along that would cause you to lose heart. And so scripture is constantly calling us to not lose heart, to persevere, right? That's one of the most frequent commands, just persevere, just don't give up. See it through to the end. And Paul goes on then and says, this instruction will fuel this endurance so that we might have hope. Because Paul's not just looking for a, a bunch of people who will just sort of grit their teeth and bear it and just kind of somehow plug through. Paul's looking for people who will not just endure in that sort of way, but endure with an incredible, glorious, victorious hope because they know that in the end there's triumph because they know that their Savior has already won. And so when we get back to the Old Testament, what we ought to be looking for is, what does it instruct me? What does it teach me? What am I to learn? What truth is there? How does that truth then fuel my endurance? And how does that ultimately all fit together that I would end up a man or a woman of hope? And so as we come to Daniel 3, I just want to throw that out there because those are the questions we need to ask as we wade through this chapter. Now, Daniel 3 is probably one of the most well-known stories of the whole book of Daniel. In fact, I'd argue probably Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, which if you don't know kind of the the references, one is Daniel in the lion's den, that's coming later, and this one is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And, and I think if you know anything of the book of Daniel, it's probably those two Bible stories because they, they've been turned into little kids' movies and they're taught in Sunday schools and they're, they're fairly well-known even for people who aren't perhaps all that familiar with God's word of these, these two great stories. And the, the brilliance of it is that we're familiar with them and the detriment of it is that we're familiar with them because we can very quickly become so familiar, we, we stop seeing the things that, that we're meant to see. We assume we already know the stories, and we stop reading God's word. And I think there's a, an additional danger with those two stories. The danger is that we, can, that we can turn them into great stories that have marvelous moral teachings, because they do, but that's where we stop. And so we take a story like Daniel in the lion's den, and we teach it in such a way that the point is to have courage. Or we take a story like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and we teach it in such a way as to say, you know, sometimes being obedient to the Lord will be a lonely thing. As though somehow those are the key lessons to be learned from these stories, and we fail to learn what there is true about who God is, which is the most important thing we could learn in any scriptural passage. And so this morning as we go through this, we're going to try to work hard to to honor those moral things that are important for us to recognize and learn, but to keep our eyes fixed on the main thing, which is, who is God? And as we learn truth about who he is, how does that fuel our endurance and how does that produce hope? So Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 begins this way. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 
whose height was 60 cubits. And if you do the math with footnotes, we're talking about 90 feet. So picture like a nine-story building. Its breadth, six cubits. So the, the oddity of this, this statue is its dimensions. It's, it's not what you would typically expect to find in a statue. In fact, people have sort of argued and wrestled with, you know, how would this thing even stay upright? It's sort of a, a strange-looking thing. And then and if it is that dimensions, what would it have been? And and sadly, all of those wonderfully curious, fascinating questions are not answered in the story. We don't know what the statue is of. We only know really its purpose, which Nebuchadnezzar really points to himself near the end of the story in verse 28. When he says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that this whole situation was a matter of, of, of worshiping my gods, and somehow indicating your service of them. So clearly that's what's in, in his heart, that's his ambition, that as he builds this statue, something connected with it is some sort of recognition of the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. Back to verse 1. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, which if you want to pull out maps and atlases and figure out where this is, it would take you actually right back to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And he has picked the same geographic spot that the people had once picked to try to build a building that would stretch to the heavens that they would somehow, somehow put themselves in the place of God and reject the God of Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar, it seems like he is doing essentially the same thing on a different sort of scale, a different sort of purpose, but essentially the same action. The only other thing I'd point out before we move on from verse 1 is just this little phrase, he set it up. And I point it out because what's going to happen through the chapter is purposeful repetition. In other words, it's not that Daniel is a, a poor author and lacks for words. It's not that he's clumsy in his language. He will purposely repeat over and over certain things to drive forward a point. So if you look at verse 1, he set it up. If you look at verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar set it up. If you look at verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar had set it up. Again, verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Verse 7, Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Verse 12, you have set it up. Verse 14, I set it up. And verse 18, you set it up. You, you kind of get the picture of what's going on. Whatever else is going on with this statue, Nebuchadnezzar is the driving authority behind the whole thing. This is his plan his program, his honor that's at stake. That's pretty important to know as we start working through the story. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In other words, in verse 2, we've got sort of in, in descending order all the various official positions within the government of Nebuchadnezzar. Starting with the satraps, who were the highest position, they were essentially um, like premiers of provinces, that type of role, all the way down to these lesser officials, will all gather on the plain of Dura before this image to worship it. And by doing that, to pledge their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 3, then the satraps, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Start to feel that repetition? It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar says, jump, and everyone says, how high? I mean, just look at the response in verse 7. As soon as they heard, we'll get here in a second, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, which is the indication they're supposed to bow, as soon as they heard it, bam, they fell down and worshiped. 
They didn't think about it. They didn't ponder it. They instantly responded to what Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to do. Back to verse 4. The herald proclaimed, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nation, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, if you're in the habit of underlining certain things in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline those two phrases, one in verse 4, and then again we find the same thing in verse... Um, where were we? Seven. Uh, nope. Mm, I'm not finding it. Peoples, nations, languages. It was there twice in that. You'll find it if you search for it. We're going to come back to that. I just want you to, to note that little expression. It's going to be very important in the book of Daniel. In other words, what Nebuchadnezzar believes he is doing is he is having the entire world bow before this idol, statue, somehow indication of his authority. All the nations, all the peoples, all languages together will submit to him. Just so you know, at the the point of of the timeline we're in now, it's kind of interesting. Um, Daniel and his three friends were taken into exile around the year 597. That's when Nebuchadnezzar first goes into Judah, captures it, takes out that first wave of the young men, young officials he will take into exile to, to take these positions in his government. He puts a puppet king in place back in Judah, leaves that puppet king there to govern that nation on his behalf. What that puppet king does uh, about 10 years after that is he decides, for a reason that we're really not sure of, to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and to join forces with Egypt, which causes Nebuchadnezzar to return to Judah with his armies, and this time finish really what he began in 597 in the years 587 and 586, and he utterly and completely destroys Judah. It's almost a statement moment for him. And if you read the descriptions in the rest of the Old Testament that talk about this time, it is, it is a horrific time in the nation of Judah's life. He surrounds the city. He laid siege for about two years. And by the time he is done, he leaves nothing. He, he completely destroys everything. And it's almost like, because this story here probably takes place right after that, it's almost like he returns back to Babylon and now is going to make a statement that he is now ruler of the world. And just in case anyone ever misunderstood or didn't understand it clearly, now he's going to build this statue so everyone can come and make sure they've paid their homage and, and, and indicated their fidelity to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's really the first seven verses of the book. Uh, of chapter 3 of Daniel, which leaves us with, I hope, a massive question on our minds when we come to that last verse, verse 7. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sounds of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped. Here's the question I hope goes through your mind. It can't be all, can it? Because if it's all, what about Daniel? What about Shadrach? What about Meshach? What about Abednego? What about these last two chapters of these young men who seemed 
prepared to risk everything for the faith in the living God that they served. What about chapter 2 where, where Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar and, and points credit to God rather than taking it for himself because God is able to work through Daniel to reveal the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Not only the dream, but its interpretation. What about this moment where Daniel so boldly in chapter 2 says that it's God who, who removes kings and sets up kings. That's Daniel's statement, his prayer, his recognition of God. Like surely, surely it's not all bowing before this idol, is it? Now, here's the fascinating thing about Daniel chapter 3. Nowhere does Daniel himself show up in the story. I don't actually have an answer for what, how that piece resolves, other than I find it incredibly hard to believe that Daniel is one of the ones who's going to get down and bow before an idol. I, I suspect there's something else going on in the story that we're just not told about. What we are told about is what happens with the other three young men who have pledged their allegiance to the Lord rather than to Nebuchadnezzar because that's really where the rest of the chapter goes. Because what it turns out has happened is that when verse 7 says, all bow down, there were three exceptions. Verse 8 says, therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had decreed, right? So there's the decree. They remind him of the decree. Then verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you get to the end of chapter 2, you'll see the very moment where, where Nebuchadnezzar promotes them to these positions of, of significance within the province of Babylon, which means that they would have been among the group who come to the plain there of Dura, who are to bow before this idol. They've evidently come to the plain, but haven't bowed. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Now, an interesting aside, just for a moment. That is not an entirely accurate statement. <laughs> they make it sound like these three young men have done nothing that would affirm or recognize the king's authority, which isn't actually entirely correct, is it? They actually did show up on the plain of Dura. They are actually there among the crowd. They just refused to bow to an idol. Later on, we're going to actually learn that they, they showed up in essentially their Sunday best. There's a very odd little note of when they're thrown in the, the flaming furnace that's been heated seven times over. In verse 21, we found out that they're bound in their cloaks and tunics and their hats and their other garments. You kind of wonder, what's that about? Why are we told such an odd detail? It's like, all right, he didn't take their clothes off before he threw. No, what's happening in that verse is you're finding out that they showed up for the occasion in what we would probably say is like their Sunday best. So they showed up as the king commanded them to show up. They wore the best, the finest, the appropriate clothing. See, what's interesting about the story is they did everything they could to honor their king, 
They just refuse to bow before an idol. Now, their enemies, their adversaries come and they, they, don't, they don't frame it like that at all, do they? Instead, they say this, they pay no attention to you. It's like, well, that's not correct. They paid a lot of attention to the king. They just wouldn't bow to a foreign idol. It's probably worth just that, that little note in the back of our minds that sometimes when you stand for your faith, the accusations that come won't be entirely accurate. You ever notice that? <laughs> they, they tend to be much overstated. They tend to be much simplified. And I think the lesson partly, the, one of those moral lessons of the story is we ought to do the same kind of things as these three young men. The point is not that we make a big scene or a big fuss. The point is that we remain faithful to the Lord. But we live in the world that we live in as well as we can. They seem to do that. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage. Note he's already in a rage at this point because the rage is going to be turned up a few notches in a few verses. But he's in a furious rage. He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought... Um, so, these, so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? Almost disbelief in this man's mind. And do you know why I think there's disbelief? I think, I think for Nebuchadnezzar this makes no sense. See, the Babylonians are polytheistic. What that means is they have many gods. So if they went and they attacked a foreign country and, and destroyed its kingdom and destroyed its temple, they would take those gods back to Babylon and set them up with their gods. They had no problem having lots of gods. They, they collected them. And to have many gods that you would pay homage to and worship was no big deal for Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. This was a mind-boggling thing for Nebuchadnezzar that someone would simply refuse to bow down and just, just add one more god. You surely wouldn't trade your life for refusing to just not bow to one more God. But that's exactly what's going to happen here. Nebuchadnezzar is in this rage. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. By the way, you thought a bagpipe was a Scottish instrument, didn't you? Don't you wonder what it looked like and sounded like? I do. That's where my imagine. I just, I just imagine this. I apologize to any one of the lovers of those particular instruments. I just imagine this like horrific loud noise. I'm not sure that it sounded good, but I just sort of picture it's like he's gathered every sort of loud instrument he could. It's like, all right, got to put the whole band together. And when I command, we just want to hear volume. So if you're ready, he says to them, we're going to do this one more time. I wonder what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did at this moment. We don't know. There's no description, no indication of what the conversation was, if there was a conversation. Did they huddle together one last time, reaffirm what they already knew? It says to them, if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then this wonderful, wonderful question. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, there is none. He, he poses it not looking for an actual answer. He poses it in such a way to suggest that there is no God who could deliver them from his hand. I mean, think of what he's just done. He's just marched on their homeland. 
and utterly destroyed the temple. That was the final act he committed when he marched finally in 586 with his armies and destroyed Jerusalem. The last thing he did is raise the temple to the ground. That was an indication that he defeated the God of Israel. Now he comes to this moment of the plain of Dura. What he's suggesting is that even if they have a God, that God can't save them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered. <laughs> so you hear the question, who is the God? Here's the answer. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> like the, the boldness at that point. Nebuchadnezzar, we're beyond giving you an answer now. Now what's going to happen next is we're going to act upon our faith convictions. We're going to act upon what we know to be true. We're going to act upon the things that we trust, the things that we know that are there even though we not see them with our eyes. If this be so, verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now those two verses have been, it, it's, it's a strange, there's strange language in those two verses. And so sometimes there's been some struggle over how to translate or exactly what that means. But it basically boils down to this. Nebuchadnezzar, we have absolute certainty that our God could save us. That if you throw us in that fiery furnace, our God could deliver us. We believe that he has the strength to accomplish that. We aren't certain that he will. He may choose not to. We know he can. He's got the power. We're just not sure of what his plan is in this. But regardless, we're not going to bow. That's courage. That's amazing conviction. That's what I hope you pray for yourselves and your families and your grandkids in this church. Then, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Remember, he's already in a furious rage back in verse 13. It gets amped up even more here in verse 19. Because to Nebuchadnezzar, this now seems to take on a very personal feel, doesn't it? Don't you suddenly start to realize what's at stake for him? It's not an issue of the gods anymore now. It's an issue of Nebuchadnezzar. It's his authority, his power that's being challenged. The expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Which don't, don't try to do the math of what temperature that would have been. It's again one of those biblical references when the number seven is used, often referring to the number of perfection. In other words, what he's just done is he said, I want the furnace as hot as humanly possible. In fact, we're going to find out in the next few verses, it's so hot that by the time the guards who bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in, gather them and get close enough to throw them into the fire, they'll lose their lives doing it. Again, one of those moral lessons, isn't it, in all this? To be so careful with our anger. Because in our, in our anger, we can do such damage. In, in Nebuchadnezzar's anger, he's going to end the lives of some of his choice mighty men to carry out this rage-fueled fury of his. Verse 20, he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them in the burning fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments. They were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, those on the fringes and the margins of this fire died. We're about to find out that those who were thrown into the middle of it would live. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then, verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three bound men into the fire? They answered and said, O king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together. In other words, all those that he had previously assembled to come and, and bow before his idol and essentially bow before him have now gathered around this scene as these three men have been delivered by the Most High God. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them out of the furnace and is about to have this short conversation with them. Here's what he notes. The fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their head was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come on them. I was about grade nine when I learned to barbecue. Learning to barbecue is often a trial error experience. I remember the time I was outside. I can vividly picture it. I was on my own, which is probably good. Parents were away, turning the barbecue, light, 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 didn't light, 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 didn't light. I'd not learned yet that after a while you should probably turn the barbecue off for a little bit, let the propane kind of disperse and then restart. Eventually it lit, and I still remember the poof out of the barbecue and the, the incineration of my eyebrows and the front of my hair was gone. That's what, no, that's actually not what happened up here, but uh, that's a whole other issue going on up there. Um, but, but you know, like some of you have, you know the experience, right? That when you get near to flame, one of the first things to go, or maybe you get near to a, a campfire and, the, you know, you're roasting your marshmallow and all of a sudden you notice the hair on your fingers starts to kind of like curl up and singe and there's that funny smell and all those kind of things that happen as hair gets, that's what's being described in this. That's what's so amazing to Nebuchadnezzar. The hair on their heads wasn't singed. They just went into the hottest furnace he could produce and came out completely untouched. That's what you're supposed to learn from this story. It's not just the moral lessons of the dangers of anger and the loneliness of obedience and all those kind of things. You're supposed to learn that there is a God who could take three young men, be with them through a furnace that should have incinerated them in a second and delivered them completely untouched. Now, it's not the end of the story, and it's not the whole story. Nebuchadnezzar goes on. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. Again, there's lots of debate over who it was in the furnace. Um, I'm not going to be too dogmatic on it. I probably would cast my vote with a pre-incarnate Christ, but 
I'm not going to lose sleep if you disagree with me on there. Clearly, it's God intervening. So at some level, God does this. And seems like Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that fact. He maybe doesn't have all the language to remember. This is Nebuchadnezzar's description. At one moment, he's like, it's like one who's the son of God. Now he's describing it's like one who's an angel. But God has done this. He's delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I love this part. I love because Nebuchadnezzar is such an unfinished product in chapter 3. He really is. The pieces are slowly coming together for him. He's he's raw. (laughs) Listen to what he does next. Therefore, I make a decree. It's like his new decree. He already made a decree. The first decree was everyone's supposed to bow down or I'm going to have them burnt alive. Now, now I make a decree that anyone who speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb for limb and their houses laid to ruins. Don't you, don't you just love this guy? He just wants to destroy something. It's just, it's just the first impulse of his mind. If I can't burn you to death, okay, if you're against him, I'm going to tear your limbs out. It's like it's just the go-to default thing in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. But, but he begins to recognize, and here's what he says, there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. You might want to underline that. You might want to know that. In fact, if we were to start unpacking this passage in the way that Paul encourages us to in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, where he says, what was written in the former times was written to instruct. I would want to suggest to you this morning that the main thing this passage instructs us about is the nature of God. There is a God who is able to save. God can save his people. He's really, really good at it. In fact, almost every page of this book speaks to that. You actually have to work hard to find a chapter in Scripture that isn't going to point to the fact that God is a God who's able to save. Now, the story ends, verse 30. The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And there are some preachers who would end this sermon this way. Therefore, if you're obedient to God, it's going to work out great and you're going to get a promotion at work. Um, But you know that's not the way it works, right? Because for every three young men who are delivered from the fire, there have been hundreds and thousands who weren't. God could have, but in those cases, he chose not to. Just last week, we celebrated the 492nd, I think it was, anniversary (coughs) of one of the great Scottish reformers' execution on February 29th. It was a leap year when Patrick Hamilton was burnt alive. His story is interesting. Some of you probably know it even better than I do. Um, He was very, came from a very affluent family, from a line of kings, actually. And um, because of the wealth of the family as a 13-year-old, he was sent from Scotland to Paris to study in university at 13. He graduated three years later with his master's degree. Talk about setting the bar high. It's intimidating, isn't it? While he was in Paris, it was the same time when Martin Luther was writing in Germany, and a lot of his his writings had made their way into Paris where where they were instantly recognized as heresy. Except... Patrick Hamilton listened to them and there was something about them that rang true. He recognized that what was being written by Martin Luther was actually, it was true to the word of God. 
And so at 16, he went back to Scotland and started to teach. Things didn't always go well over the next brief time because really all that was left of his life was a brief time. Um, In fact, a few years later, still as a teenager, he was encouraged to leave Scotland because things had gotten so dangerous for him. So he went to Germany. He was amazed that when he arrived in Germany, people were actually living out this faith, living out a faith that said, God's word is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ that you're saved by faith alone is true. And it was transforming lives. He was so overwhelmed that he only stayed in Germany about six months. He was so compelled to go back to Scotland and continue to preach. So he returned to Scotland. He began to preach with even more conviction. Now bear in mind, I think he was, I think he was 19, if I'm doing the math right at this point. He led his brothers and his mom to the Lord. He started leading a few others to the Lord. Very quickly, the the religious leaders in Scotland recognized the problem they had. They actually viewed him as more of a threat than if Luther had shown up himself because he came from such a strong, recognized heritage. And so they viewed him as an immense threat. So they brought him before a a court, and he had written a paper. It was his 13 statements, essentially, the 13 things he believed to be true about, about God and his word and salvation. And they gave him a chance to recant. Simply just walk away from this. And you can just go back to life that was so good, you had the world by the coattails. But he refused. He was thrown in prison. They decided to burn him at the stake. And on February 29th, (coughs) it was a rainy day, Scotland. It took them six hours to burn him at the stake. The fire kept going out. They kept lighting it, partly burning him, and it would go out for six hours. His final words, how long, O Lord, shall darkness overwhelm this kingdom? How long will you suffer the tyranny of men? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Within weeks, the man who had argued against him at his court case had come to faith in the Lord. Others who had stood opposed to him, who had represented sort of the official church that was opposed to the gospel, began to convert and trust in Christ. They started gathering them up and arresting them because they they realized the problem they had in their hands. And then this fascinating statement made. The reek of Mr. Patrick Hamilton has infected as many as it blew upon. They meant that literally. The stench of this young man's body being burnt alive at the stake was so overwhelming, it just pungent, just spread everywhere over these six hours, that people recognized that there must be something to this. Who dies like that if they don't believe it? You see, sometimes God delivers, and sometimes God delivers in other ways. Um, those that they had gathered up in the cells that they decided to execute after him, they no longer burned them at the stake. They strangled them in dungeons for fear of the smell of what would have happened had they burned them alive. A 19-year-old. I hope, Emmanuel, you're praying for our young adults that they would have that kind of conviction, that kind of faith. 
And I hope you learn from Daniel chapter 3 that we have a God who is able to save. Doesn't mean he'll always get us out of every hard thing. That might not be his will. You heard it in the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't you? We know our God is able to save. But if he doesn't, we're still not bowing. So we learn that God can save. Then we apply that and say, what difference does that make in terms of our endurance? If we have a God who can save in that way, I hope it would fuel endurance, not diminish it. Right? Because when our world comes and says, look, here's the deal. If you would just bow to one of these other idols, you don't have to reject your God. You don't have to set aside Jesus. That's not what the world's after. It never was. It wasn't ne what Nebuchadnezzar was after was these three young men. You know, it's nowhere in the story is he asking them to reject God. He's just asking them to add a God. Just one more. I think it's the same pressure we face often these days. It's not you have to give up Jesus. It's just you've got to crack open the door to be willing to admit or accept that there are other ways. You just got to be willing to set aside Jesus' words in John chapter 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you could just set that aside and say, you know what, maybe, maybe that's overemphasizing, overstating the case. That's all the world is after. But when you know God's able to save, and you know God could protect us through that, it helps us endure. Now, again, we don't want to just endure with sort of that teeth clenched sort of, sort of thing. So where does the hope come? Well, you know that little expression I was getting you to underline. I don't know if any of you did or not. That little expression that, that Nebuchadnezzar keeps coming back to of, of peoples, nations, and languages. In the book of Daniel, this expression shows up a number of times. It seems like this is the ambition of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. To have peoples, nations, and languages bow before him. Recognize his authority. It's interesting that by chapter 7, where we find a description of of Jesus, the, the true son of man, and we'll get there in another month or so, we find out that in verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. You see, it's almost like Daniel is, is saying, you know what, there is one to whom this whole world would bow, but it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's what he wants. It's what he's trying to produce, but he's never going to accomplish it. But one day, every knee will bow to Jesus. All right, so in the book of Daniel, we get this expression at least six times. And then, never used again until the book of Revelation. Now, in Revelation, there's all sorts of fascinating things that go on in that book. Um, one of them is that John quotes the Old Testament about 500 times, never tells us he's doing it, so it's not like he's going to say, as Isaiah says, and then quote it. He just does it. And when he quotes these Old Testament passages, he almost always changes the original quotation, which normally would be a bad thing, except remember that John's inspired by the Spirit of God. So clearly a very different scenario than, than us changing God's word, which I'm not advocating. Are we all clear on that? If you memorize a verse, stick to the Bible version. Don't tweak it. Um, but John does, and he does it on purpose because the changes get to the heart or the point of the message. So what's really interesting is if you were to turn to Revelation chapter 10, you would see that John is going to take up this exact phrase, peoples, nations, and languages. And the context is, is the authority of God to rule over peoples, nations, and languages. That's what's going on in, in 
chapter 10, this mighty angel comes down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, face like the sun, legs like pillar of fire, the authority of God coming through this angelic being. And then this message comes that there's going to be a, a prophecy for all nations, languages, and, and, and peoples, because that's, that's God's prerogative. He rules over people's nations and languages. But there's one thing added to the statement. I'll read it for you. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Don't make the mistake of minimizing what you've just read. That, that's, that's going all the way back to Daniel. That's going back to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, Nebuchadnezzar, I need you to understand something. That it's not about nations and peoples and languages bowing and yielding before you. Nebuchadnezzar, it's about peoples and nations and languages and kings bowing before me. And as we move into chapter 4 next week, you're going to see that's the very work that God is going to be doing in Nebuchadnezzar's heart to cause this man to yield and bow before the one true living God. You see, in the end... God wins. He wins. It's incredible hope. Every nation will bow. Every king will bow. There's no one who can stand up to him and resist him. No one who can overthrow him. No one who can threaten him. Your king, your God, will rule forever. Let me pray.